What does the word atone actually mean? Did Jesus die for the sins of every individual in the entire world without exception? Can one understand the scope of the atonement if they do not understand the nature of the atonement? Is everybody going to go to heaven when they die? Welcome to the Reformed Rant. The Reformed Rant is a podcast that tackles head-on and without trepidation these difficult questions posed to Christianity by an unbelieving and thoroughly secular culture. We believe the tools of biblical theology, faithful apologetics, and a theologically and biblically informed philosophical framework help to provide the right answers to these challenging questions. They also help us understand the implications that these answers have on society, thereby calling the unbeliever to repentance, as well as to edify and equip equip the believer. My name is Ed Dingus, and today I am continuing my series of episodes on provisionism, talking about provisionism's understanding of the atonement, the nature of the atonement, which informs the scope of the atonement. I've already argued that provisionism's representation of the gospel and its representation of fallen man are incoherent. What about provisionism's view of the atonement? Can it pass the test of coherence? On with it. Let's get on with the atonement. Leighton Flowers, website, Soteriology 101 in section 3 under the atonement, says this, We affirm that the penal substitution of Christ is the only available and effective sacrifice for the sins of every person. We deny that this atonement results in salvation without a person's free response of repentance and faith. In other words, the atonement didn't accomplish one single solitary thing. All it did was made something possible. It goes on to say, we deny that God imposes or withholds this atonement without respect to an act of the person's free will. So in other words, this is an atonement that really doesn't atone for the sins of anyone in and of itself. An atonement that does not atone. We deny that Christ died for the sins of those. We deny that Christ died only for the sins of those who will be saved. Which means we affirm that Christ died even for the sins of those who will be lost. 
All right. <laughs> yeah. The question again that I'm asking, just as a reminder, is this. Does provisionism have what we would consider to be a coherent doctrine of the atonement? And my conclusion is that it does not. My conclusion is that the doctrine of the atonement of Christ, as expressed in provisionism, is incoherent. Because, on the front end, it wants to affirm a penal substitutionary view of the atonement. And on the back end, it wants to deny that the atonement is limited in any way whatsoever. All right. So the first thing I think that you need to do is understand what the word atonement means. This word is, uh, we'll go to the Hebrew. Kafar is the Hebrew word uh, that is translated in all the English versions, uh, atone. It means to make atonement, to cover, to appease, to expiate, uh, to cover someone's face with a gift, meaning to cause someone to be favorably inclined towards one's self, to appease someone, to cover with something, uh, meaning to make amends. Reformed theology claims that the atonement is limited to those who genuinely repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, that's what Orthodox Christianity has believed for 2,000 years. Um, this is basic Christian doctrine as far as the design of the atonement, the intent of the atonement is concerned. According to Scripture, the only ones whose sins have been appeased or covered or expiated are those whose faith, who, who have faith and trust in the gospel or whose faith and trust in the gospel is genuine. The idea that the work of the cross accomplished absolutely nothing unless or until man exercises his free will in some certain way is nowhere taught in Scripture. When Jesus said, it is finished, he, he did not mean that it, it isn't finished. All that's left now is up to you. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant the atoning work of Calvary. His work as the Son of God is finished. James Boyce and Philip Ryken, uh, in their, their, their great little book, The Doctrines of Grace, define it this way. If God planned from eternity to save one portion of the human race and not another, which is what election affirms, then it is a contradiction to say that he sent his son to die for those he had previously determined not to save in, in the same way that he sent his son to die for those he had determined to actually save. Calvinism does not limit the sufficiency or the value of the atonement. That's not the question here. Anytime uh, a non-reformed person raises that, it is a straw man and an indication of either their dishonesty or their ignorance. That's just the way that it is. It's either, either being dishonest or they're ignorant. Probably in most cases, they're, dis, they're ignorant. They're ignorant, not dishonest. In some cases, they're outright dishonest because they've made this accusation before and someone else has responded and corrected them 
that Calvinism, Reformed theology, does not limit the sufficiency or the value of the atonement. It limits the design or the intention of the atonement. It's why it's also called uh, particular redemption. Uh, not that the cross of Christ couldn't have provided for the forgiveness of the sins of every individual person in the world without exception. That's not what we affirm. It's not what Calvinism teaches. Uh, it teaches that the design, when we say limited, we say we mean limited by its design and, in, and its intention. It is the, it is the, the value, or is the value of the atonement sufficient to forgive the sins of everyone in the world and appease the wrath of God uh, for every sin of every individual? And the answer is yes, of course it is. The question then is really, did God intend by the death of Christ on the cross to save everyone in the whole world? Uh, and the answer is no, he, he, did, he did not. Arminianism, even with its conditional election, Calvinism teaches unconditional election. Arminianism teaches a conditional election. God foreknows those who are going to uh, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and those are the ones that he elected to salvation. And of course, even Arminians would say, yes, and these are the ones that Christ died for, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, Christ did not die for the sins of people who actually go to hell. <laughs> How could he? If you reject Christ, your sins are not forgiven and you will suffer eternal punishment, right? If your sins have not been forgiven when you stand before God, if your sins have not been forgiven when you stand before God, then they were never atoned for at the cross. And if you think they were, then you do not believe in a penal substitutionary view of the cross. That is a contradiction to say that Jesus bore your penalty for your sin. He was the substitute, the, the go-between, the stand-in. God poured his wrath out on He took your penalty. And somehow, you still get penalized. This is absolutely incoherent. Even Molinism limits the atonement. God instantiated a world in which men will refuse to believe the gospel and suffer eternal punishment. That is to say, they will not be forgiven their sins. Ever. Age without end. We have no part to play for the atonement of our sins. We cannot forgive ourselves. We are helpless. We cannot satisfy the wrath of God ourselves outside of eternal punishment. So when we say that Christ died for our sins, that word for carries the sense of substitution in place of. John Frame says it this way. If you believe in a universal atonement, Therefore, you must hold a weaker view of what the atonement is. It must be something less than a substitutionary sacrifice that brings full forgiveness. And this is absolutely true. How could it not be? How could it be anything else? Uh, 
So here's the, the argument. The first, the first syllogism would look like this. The penal substitutionary atonement forgives and removes sin. That's what it does. I have committed sin. Therefore, the penal substitutionary atonement forgives and removes my sin. If Christ atoned for my sin, this is what happens. It removes, it forgives my sin. The last sentence in Flower's belief on the atonement is the most glaring of the statements that he made in the entire section. The very first thing that came, that, that you see, I almost said came out of his mouth. The very first thing he writes is that he affirms the penal substitutionary view of Christ's atonement. And then at the end, he closes everything out by saying, we deny that Christ died only for the sins of those who will be saved. Now, I'll be honest. I've heard a lot of people argue for unlimited atonement. I've never heard any of them argue this way. I've never heard anyone who believes in, who believes in unlimited atonement to also believe that even though you go to hell, Christ died for your sins. And I think that Leighton Flowers is, is pushing this very likely, and this is me speculating. I am speculating that Flowers is, is pushing this because he knows that even in Orthodox Christianity, if you do believe in a penal substitutionary view of the atonement, then you must necessarily believe that the atonement is limited only to those who have faith and trust in the gospel because it is only for them that Christ actually died. They are the only ones whose sins have been forgiven. But he doesn't want to say that. He does not want to say in any way whatsoever that the atonement is limited. Right? This is a blatant contradiction of an earlier statement when he says, we affirm that the, the penal substitution of Christ. We affirm the penal substitutionary view of the atonement is basically what Flowers is saying. So the syllogism would look something like this. The penal substitutionary view of the atonement forgives and removes sin. I have committed sin. Therefore, the penal substitutionary atonement does not forgive and remove my sins. What? Wait, that doesn't that doesn't work, right? It's it's a non sequitur, right? You can't. So if you look at the three statements, uh, the penal substitutionary view does not forgive and remove my sins. Flowers believes this. He believes that the atonement does not forgive and remove sins. I've never heard it. I've never heard anyone actually posit that view. And someone may say, "Well, you're strawmanning him." I'm not strawmanning him because he says that Christ. Christ atoned for the sins of people who go to hell. That's what he says clearly in his statement. Now, I'm sure some of the foul boy fan club will come to his rescue and try to find some way to rescue him of this extremely embarrassing incoherence and contradiction in his view. And they'll come up with something. They'll lie. Uh, they'll do it ignorantly. They'll play games because this is what... Many of them do, not all of them, but many of them do. It's, it's unsettling to see this happening in the community of faith where there is supposed to be an ethic that guides our behavior. But when you let wolves in, when you let false teachers in, when you let unregenerate people in, then this is the kind of stuff that you end up having to deal with. So if you look at these statements again, uh, number three, I'm going to start with number three. The penal substitutionary atonement does not forgive and remove my sins. That's a conclusion. 
Well, I have committed sin. That's the second premise, the, the minor premise. There's no, there's, <clears throat> I mean, that's undeniable. So we can't do anything with that proposition. The first claim, the penal substitutionary atonement forgives and removes sin. This is what Flowers is absolutely categorically denying. Well, then what does it do, Leighton? If the penal substitutionary atonement does not forgive and remove sin, what does it do? That's, that's, the, that's the question. I mean, Jesus died for the sins of every individual in the whole world, even for the sins of people who are going to hell. And if that's true, if Flowers is right, then the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ did absolutely nothing. It's, it's an interesting position for someone to hold to. I suppose you could say that it, it only, it made a way for us to be able to save ourselves, basically. That's really, that's really what this comes down to. It made a way for us to be able to rescue our own selves. It just threw a whole bunch of life jackets and whatever in, into the water so that we could grab onto them, and some people don't want to grab onto them. And, but that analogy doesn't work with the atonement. As we look at the syllogism, we know that two cannot change. We know that two is clearly what Flowers believes. This leaves us with the first one, which I've already said. Flowers does, does not allow the biblical meaning of substitution and penal to stand. He makes it a pure potential. The, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ does nothing for most people because most people are going to hell. The definition, the definition of penal substitutionary atonement has to be deprived of its biblical meaning and given a new meaning that is external to the Bible. Now, why would Flowers do this? Why does Flowers want to hold, why does he want to deny limited atonement and affirm a penal substitutionary view of the atonement? Well, the reason he wants to to affirm a penal substitutionary view of the atonement is because if he were to reject that, there would be wholesale condemnation from the churches everywhere. There would be outrage, and he would be clearly outed for the heretic that I think he is. So he's not going to do that. He's going to affirm the penal substitutionary view of the atonement, but if you really do that, if you really affirm the penal substitutionary view of the atonement, as it is defined historically, then you have to limit the atonement. So this is, this is the thing that bothers me about, about these guys more than anything else. They lie. They, they lie. You have guys in this, in this area who, who claim to be provisionists but then they claim that they're monergists, which is a lie. They know what monergism is, and they claim to be a monergist. 
It's an outright lie. Uh, and so when Flowers says he affirms the penal substitutionary view of the atonement and then turns around and says that Christ atoned for the sins of people who are going to hell, it's a lie. He does not affirm the penal substitutionary view of the atonement because that view says that those sins for whomever Christ atoned, those sins are forgiven. The wrath of God has been turned away from them. When they stand before God in judgment, they will, they will receive the judgment that Christ earned for them with his life and his death at Calvary. That's the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. You cannot say, I affirm that, and then claim that, oh, but people that Christ did that for are still going to go to hell. Whatever view of the atonement you hold to, if you believe that Jesus atoned for people's sins who actually die and go to hell, whatever view of the atonement that you are espousing, you do not believe in the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. You reject it. So here on number three, we have Leighton Flowers rejecting the historic doctrine of the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. There is no other way to say it. So when Flowers or his fanboys agree with this section and then turn around and say, I believe in the penal substitutionary view of the atonement, they are lying. They do not believe in the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. Just like guys who are uh, libertarian free will guys who believe in conditional election or Molinism want to claim to be monergists or want to deny being a synergist. They're lying. These men are liars. And here they are running around parading as Christians claiming to be orthodox, claiming to love God, all the while lying in their views hiding what they really believe in the closet is where they're at, lying up one side and down the other. And unfortunately, we have, we have good men who are in the Reformed community who think that what I'm doing is harsh or mean or unloving or lacking in grace. And I'm going to tell you right now, you know this as well as I do if you're one of those people. The prophets wouldn't have tolerated this. The apostles would not have tolerated this. Jesus would not have tolerated this. You've been conditioned by culture that is fragile and triggered at every turn every single turn over the, over the stupidest things. And that's the issue. So when someone comes along and tells you the direct truth and elevates truth to the place where it rightfully should be and demands that we respect the word of God, 
well, it sounds harsh. It sounds graceless. It sounds, it sounds unkind because it's not politically correct. It isn't any of those things. It just doesn't swim with the current. And right now, the current, the current is swiftly sweeping people into eternal damnation, sweeping them away from any kind of sense of objective truth whatsoever. And we don't want to slam our fist on the table and stop it and get people's attention by saying, this is serious. Well, it is serious. From a biblical perspective, then, I'm going to say this. The affirmation of a penal substitutionary atonement is contradictory to the affirmation of a universal and unlimited atonement. And in the way that Flowers uh, defines it, it is, it is radically contradictory to it. Radically so. To hold two beliefs that is contradictory to each other is a textbook definition of incoherence. And this is why I have no choice but to conclude that provisionism's representation of the Christian doctrine of the atonement is incoherent. It's also why I have no choice but to say that Leighton Flowers, who is a uh, PhD and a uh, professor at one of the Southern Baptist institutions, is lying. He's not ignorant. There's no way he's ignorant. And he's been around this subject for far too long to not know what he's doing. He's lying. All right, that concludes today's episode on, on the atonement. Harsh, direct, honest, truthful. I'm not going to play with people who want to run around claiming they love God and they love God's truth while at the same time lying through their teeth about what they believe and knowingly doing it or people who want to hold themselves out as experts in a field about which they are pretty much ignorant. No, n nothing wrong with calling those kind of people out for what they are. All right. That's a wrap. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com Daddy didn't like trouble, but if it came along, everyone that knew him knew each side that he'd be on. He never was a hero for this county shining light, but you could always find him standing up for what he thought was right. He'd say, You've got to stand for something, or you'll fall for anything. on screen Never compromise what's right and uphold your family name You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything